Disclaimer. In this chapter, I will tell you the story of the still unsolved eastbound strangler. This chapter may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Hello, everyone. Today's story is about the eastbound strangler case. There is possibly a connection to the Long Island serial killer who has been identified as Rex Harriman, but uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. So on November 20th, 2006, two women are walking their dogs alongside of a drainage ditch at about three o'clock in the afternoon. It's kind of a marshy area near the Black Horse Pike, which is an Egg Harbor township, a village that sits on the outskirts of Atlantic City in New Jersey. This ditch runs alongside of a busy road in a retail area. There are some flophouse motels, but it wasn't really considered to be a dangerous area. People would actually go crabbing in the drainage ditch, and it was a popular place for people to walk their dogs or go jogging. As the women walk and visit with each other, they see something strange in this ditch that is partially hidden by the tall reeds along the sides. They move in for a closer look and are horrified to see the body of a woman floating face down in the water. They immediately call the police. Several officers arrive at the scene within minutes. Police begin to coordinate, coordinate the area, preparing to complete a thorough search of the crime scene. Passersby are asked to vacate the area and forensics unit is brought in to begin the usual procedures that are undertaken in situations like this. As police begin to search the scene, looking for any clues, maybe like articles of clothing or handbags, anything that might help them in their investigation, one of the police officers shouts out that there's another body. More officers are brought in, and a larger section of the area is cordoned off. They realize they've got something much bigger here than a single murder, something that sadly is not uncommon in Atlantic City, but very quickly after the second body is found, there is a third, and then a fourth. Investigators are shocked. They have stumbled upon the dumping ground of a serial killer. Black Horse Pike, also known as Route 322, became crowded with police cars, corner vans, and media trucks. As word spreads that not one, but all four bodies, all female, have been found in the drainage ditch, police quickly realize that the placement of the bodies is very particular very intentional. All four of the women's bodies were placed with their heads facing east, and they have been placed almost 60 feet apart from each other. The spacing of the bodies was almost perfectly symmetrical, and the fact that all of the women were found face down with their heads facing east told investigators that this was an unusual suspect. They had no doubt from the beginning that they were looking for a serial killer. All of the women were completely clothed in underwear, pants, shirts, and jackets, but all of four of the bodies, the socks and shoes, have been removed and were missing. The killer had also taken all four women's purses and their cell phones, maybe as trophies. When investigators took all the crime scene photos and thoroughly investigated the dump site, the bodies were removed and sent to the coroner for identification and cause of death. Determination before long, it was clear that the women had been strangled. The first victim was Barbara V. Brader. Barbara had been a cocktail waitress at the Tropicana, 
and also helped out in her mother's clothing shop, but she had become addicted to prescription painkillers after an injury, and then sadly, to heroin. At the time of Barbara's murder, she was a 42-year-old prostitute who worked to support her drug habit. She disappeared in mid-October, but no one had reported her missing for several weeks. Her body was badly decomposed, and she had to be identified through dental records. Her cause of death could not be fully determined because of decomposition, but they did think strangulation. The second victim was Molly Jean Diltz. She was only 20 years old. Molly hadn't been in Atlantic City for very long. She was originally from Blacklick, Pennsylvania, and had come to the city known as America's Playground to make money. Molly's mother had died very young, and then her brother died. All of that loss had been really tough on Molly, and she called her dad Warner on October 7th, 2006, from a payphone, and that's the last time he spoke with her. Molly had a son she loved very much, who was staying with her dad. She was seen just a few days before her disappearance in late October, and unlike the other three victims, Molly did not have a criminal record of prostitution. Police came to believe that she had been working as a prostitute. Molly was too decomposed to determine her cause of death, but again, they thought strangulation. The third victim was Tracy Roberts. She was 23 years old and had worked as an exotic dancer. Like Molly, she hadn't been in Atlantic City for too long. Tracy was from a small town in Delaware, and she was known to have a drug habit. She turned to sex work to pay for that habit. Sadly, just a few days before her murder, Tracy had called her mother telling her that she wanted out of this life and she wanted to come back to Delaware. But before her mother could get to Atlantic City to pick her up, Tracy had changed her mind. She was last seen in mid-November when she went to the hospital because she had been hit in the throat by a man who wanted to be her pimp. After this visit to the hospital, it's unknown where Tracy went. Her body wasn't as badly decomposed as the other two victims, and her cause of death was determined to be strangulation. The last victim was Kim Raffo. She was 35 years old. Kim was a wife and a mother who worked as a waitress in Brooklyn. She had been a mom active in the PTA, but she got involved in drugs and abandoned her husband and her children to work as a prostitute in Atlantic City, just trying to feed her drug habit. Tracy was last seen just a day before the bodies were discovered, so she was not decomposed at all. It was much easier to get a cause of death for her, and they found that she had been strangled with a rope or a cord. So now police knew who all four of the victims were. They were all sex workers, and they all worked the streets near Egg Harbor Township when they were murdered. The coroner and police agreed. The woman had all been killed elsewhere and then been dumped in the drainage ditch. On the more decomposed bodies, it was difficult to tell if there were any defensive wounds. Kim Raffo did not have any, which left detectives to wonder if the women had been drugged before they were strangled. That would definitely explain why they hadn't fought back. Unfortunately, that scenario, unfortunately, that scenario, them being drugged and killed elsewhere, left police with a scenario that they didn't have a murder scene to investigate. To make matters worse, the water in the drainage ditch washed away some of the evidence, but they were able to locate enough DNA to begin testing. Now they just had to find a suspect. A man named Charles Coles, a drug dealer who was known to deal to Kim Raffo, was questioned by the police, but then ruled out. 
Police learned that Kim Rabin with a New Jersey doctor in his motel room at the Trump Taj Mahal on the day before her death. The police acquired Kim's cell phone records and located this doctor that she had been with, and I bet he was sweating bullets, but the doctor told police that Kim said she was going out to buy drugs and she'd be right back. She left the motel and never returned. The doctor tried calling her, but she never picked it up, so of course... You know that this doctor wasn't investigated, but they did end up ruling him out as a suspect. I don't know if the doctor's name was ever public, but I always wonder when people go out and hire prostitutes, like, do they, do they worry that they're going to get caught or if somebody finds out they were hiring prostitutes? What if something like this happens and, you know, their name gets in the paper? I think their lives would be ruined. I think most people would care if their name gets out, but some might not care. I don't know. The police began to wonder if these four victims could be tied to the still unknown at that time serial killer known as the Long Island serial killer. We just did the Gilgo Beach episode and the arrest of Rex Howerman, that story where Shannon Gilbert kind of gets lost in the marshy area out in the middle of nowhere on Long Island, and as they're looking for her, they stumble upon the dumping ground of the Long Island serial killer. So for a while, the New Jersey police start to think and wonder if this is the same guy and if he's just come to Atlantic City. The drainage ditch in New Jersey has a lot of similarities to where the victims of the Long Island serial killer were found, so they started to weigh that out for a while. This seems to be a viable theory, but after some investigation and DNA matching, the police have determined that they don't believe that the two cases are connected. I will tell you, though, that there are people who believe that it is, and I'm sure that Rex is the forefront of this investigation right now. So right in front of the dump site on the other side of the drainage ditch sat the Golden Key Motel. It was a flophouse motel where you could get a room for just $15 for the entire night. Police began to wonder if the four victims used that location to take their customers. They began speaking with the employees at the motel. They learned that the employees seemed to recognize some of the victims and believed that yes, they had at times used the rooms in the motel for their services. So police begin to question all of the motel employees and very quickly a suspect comes into view. This is Terry Olson. At the time of the discovery of the bodies, he was a 35-year-old handyman working at the Golden Key Motel. Terry had a criminal record and he was being allowed to stay at the Golden Key for free in exchange for his work doing repairs and maintenance. Terry had a girlfriend at the time, so she of course was interviewed and then police went from person to person at the motel investigating. Terry's girlfriend said some very concerning things to police. Apparently, Terry and his girlfriend were in the middle of a very big argument when the bodies were found, and so this woman was not holding anything back. She told police very bluntly what she thought of Terry and his sexual appetites. She said that basically that not only was he capable of being a serial killer, it wouldn't surprise her if he was. So police go to Terry Olson's motel room where he's living and are absolutely shocked and horrified at what they find inside. Terry had several cameras set up and pointed at the bed. He was making his own homemade pornography, but that wasn't the worst of it. Inside one of Terry's drawers, they found photos of Terry's girlfriend's teenage daughter undressing. So this immediately gave a lot of weight to what his girlfriend had told the police about Terry. Something just wasn't right about him. Terry was brought in for questioning, and even as he was being interviewed, word got out to the media that there was a suspect, 
and it didn't take long for reporters to begin splashing Terry's photo, wearing a prison orange jumpsuit from a previous arrest, all over the news. Terry became public enemy number one, and the media began calling him the Eastbound Strangler. Um, I think the media took that name from the way all of the victims were positioned, laying the same way in the drainage ditch which the, with their heads pointed east. So Terry vehemently proclaimed his innocence from the very beginning, but no one was buying it. He claims his life became a living hell, and he would be threatened and harassed everywhere he went. For a while, he even stopped leaving his house. Unbelievably, you guys are not going to believe this, as they're investigating Terry Olson, police chief directs for a separate detective to investigate the four separate murders as though each woman was murdered by a different person. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand why that was done. I also read that the prosecutor at the time, I don't know if he's still the prosecutor, but he was hesitant to use the word serial killer with regards to this case. Atlantic City is pretty dependent on tourism and you know what politicians and city officials are all about um, when it comes to tourism. They even put, you know, their tourism ahead of public safety. The city really relies on tourism for survival. So when the word gets out that there's a serial killer and that might hurt tourism, I guess I can understand the prosecutor's reluctance to use the word serial killer on the case but I still think it seems kind of ridiculous to, to think that anyone would believe these murders weren't linked. What ended up happening, according to officers who worked the case, is that one officer would go out, find information on his victim, and then other officers just ended up duplicating that same information because they were told to investigate the murders separately. They wasted a lot of time. One officer later said that the le- the least they should have done is schedule a daily meeting where all four officers would compare notes, but they didn't even do that. It seems very counterproductive to me and even to the officers, one of whom who later said they just didn't want to start with the premise that one person did all of this and that was their fatal mistake. Yeah, I'm sure the cops were frustrated with that too. The other mistake in the investigation occurred when it was decided not to involve the Atlantic City vice officers, who had much more experience investigating murders because the bodies were found in Egg Harbor Township. Those were the only officers that were involved in this, and in most people's opinion, that was a mistake not involving officers with more experience. Plus, the vice officers knew the area prostitutes, they had relationships with them, and they could have been more involved. They would most likely have been able to get more information from the women. They had built a rapport with these women. They, the women would have been more willing to speak with them. They were trusted. They trusted them on other cases. Vice officers know who hangs around with who, who they may have been able to get a little bit more information from about who the regulars were, you know, like that kind of thing but they didn't bring them in. They didn't ask for any help. Not until a month after the bodies were found was an official task force formed. At that point, authorities did begin to tell the public it was a serial killer. Calls begin coming into the task force. People are telling officers that there's this man who is on the streets of Atlantic City telling prostitutes that he frequents that he's the killer. His name was Eldred Burchell, but he liked to call himself Riverman. People who nickname themselves make me nervous. Police begin asking prostitutes about this riverman, and many of them know him. It turns out that Burchell 
confessed to another prostitute that he killed people, so he was questioned when she reported this to the police. He was unable to be connected to any of these murders. And guys, that's it for suspects over the years. But criminal profiler John Kelly created a profile of the eastbound strangler. The initial profile read in part, quote, this lethal predator is a local male who is very familiar with the area around Atlantic City and the disposal site of his victims. He has a very organized personality, which influences his personal everyday activities, including his work. He is very rigid and structured in his everyday life. A place for everything and everything in its place would be his motto. He has read and reads books on serial killers and has some knowledge of crime scenes and investigation. He has an extreme foot fetish and has a collection of women's shoes and the shoes of his victims. He has not killed every prostitute he has come in contact with. There are prostitutes who know him for the sexual gratification he gets from their feet. He is non-social and likes to keep to himself. He is narcissistic. Everything revolves around him, and he is also very concerned with making himself look good in all aspects. He is also extremely opinionated. If criticized or disagreed with, he would become extremely angry or agitated, although at times, when he wants to, he can be very charming. In his post-defense mode, he would say things like, they got what they deserve, or good riddance. He follows news of his killings in the media. His hobbies would include art and photography, and his obsessive fantasies would compel him to search for sexually graphic and or violent pictures in all media. He probably has a prior record of sexual or physical abuse or sexual harassment towards women. He may have recently suffered a setback in his work or in a relationship. This predator is probably detached from his father and was abused as a child. This person has also killed before these recent victims were found, and he will be compelled to continue his murderous ways in the future. Now, so, unquote, sorry. Now, we know that Rex Heuerman is being investigated for any ties to these Atlantic City murders. But just going off of the profile points that I just read, let, let's go back really quickly and just go through the list. So he has a very organized personality, which influences his personal everyday activities, including his work. I think we can put a check mark beside that for Rex. He has and reads books on serial killers and has some knowledge of crime scenes and crime investigations. Um, check those Google searches about the Long Island serial killer case. I'm not sure if he searched about the Eastbound Strangler case, but he could have. He could have. Um, he has not killed every prostitute he's come into contact with. Um, who knows about the feet footish, fetish part, but we've heard from other women who had, quote, dates with him, and we know he frequented uh, prostitutes and escorts. The next one, he is non-social and likes to keep to himself. He is a narcissist. Everything re revolves around him, blah, blah, blah. Check. Uh, see the interview that Rex did with Bonjour Reality about his architecture company. He was, um, you know, he was opinionated. He, I don't know, this one was a big check mark for me too. The next one in the profile, he is extremely opinionated. I just said that. If criticized or disagreed with, he would become extremely angry or agitated. Although at times when he wants to, he can be very charming. Check. 
um, think back to the former escort who was on the news who said that he got very agitated when she denied his request for her to go back to go in his car with him. He was agitated. I'm sure that's not the only time. Oh, also another point in the profile, he follows the news of his killings in the media. Check. Obviously, we know that. His hobbies would include art and photography. His obsessive fantasies would compel him to search for sexually graphic and or violent pictures. Um, Triple check. You remember those horrific Google searches he did. I'm not going to go over them, but that is a triple check. This predator is probably detached from his father and was abused as a child. I don't really know about his relationship with his dad, but check. Reports say that Rex was a loner and he was bullied in school about his size and his awkwardness. And then the last point in the profile, this person has also killed before these recent victims were found and will be compelled to do so in the future. Possible check if responsible for all of the bodies found in Suffolk County. So all 10 of those bodies. And I, I should include Shannon Gilbert, but I'm not going to. But the other 10 bodies, not just the four that he's been, or the three that he's been um, charged with, but all of them. I don't know. I'm going to reserve my opinion until the police make the connection or are able to eliminate Rex as a suspect for these killings. But he does seem to fit the bill, in my opinion. He's from a different area, yes, but Long Island is about a three and a half hour drive from Atlantic City. But remember, Rex also has a timeshare in Las Vegas. So I'm going to assume he enjoyed that atmosphere, the casinos and the nightlife. Atlantic City is a lot closer than Vegas for him. And let's not put too much weight on how the women or bodies were dumped. Some of the Long Island bodies were dismembered. It's possible that he was learning as he went possibly knew he was a strangler, he enjoyed the strangling, but disposal is a means to not get caught in most cases. Dismemberment is a lot of work and messy work. We just heard the Taylor Shabiznes case. Um, and I mean, we know from other cases, dismemberment is messy, messy work. He could have learned early on that he didn't want that kind of a mess, just like John Wayne Gacy and his first victim. Now let's talk about the burlap. Maybe these were his final victims and the idea just occurred to him to use the duck hunting style burlap to better hide the bodies. I mean, we can explain the different means of disposal if Rex is indeed the guy. Who knows if he has more victims in Las Vegas or in South Carolina where he owned more property. But even if he didn't and we just go on the victims we know about, he could be responsible for over 15 murders spanning 20 years. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, it's another short one, but when more information is released about Rex, I'll let you know. I hope he's the guy who's committed all of these murders so that the case can be resolved and the families can have some peace. Um, rest in peace to all of these women, uh, the young Asian man and the little toddler. If you haven't listened yet, go back and listen to our Long Island serial killer episode for more information on those victims. But yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Join our Facebook page for pictures and updates on cases we've covered and breaking news stories. If you have case suggestions or requests, send us an email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com or on Facebook Messenger. 
can follow us on TikTok and Instagram for related content, and I will see you next time. Bye.